If you have your Bibles taken out, you're going to have to follow along tonight. As I said in an email, I am not preaching tonight. Josh Berry's preaching. He is uh, a church planting apprentice with True Life Church. Him and his wife, Joni, feel called to plant a church or a campus in the near future. And so uh, he is going to be preaching from time to time. And tonight is one of those times. Uh, so we're taking a break from Exodus. And you're going to hear from him. He's only going to have scripture references on the screen, not the entire passages like I normally do. So follow along with your Bible or your Bible app if you uh, have them available. Okay, everybody? At that, no more introduction needed. Bring it, Josh. Hello. My parents with us tonight, Dave and Kathy Berry, right over there. Wave, mom and dad. All the way from Colorado. Okay, let's start with Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. And I'll have you turn a few places tonight, whether in your mobile app or your Bible. Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 through 15. This is the heart of the, t the message tonight. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Because, because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Amen? Colossians 2. Will you pray with me? Father, in Mark 2, there's a moment when it says that Jesus was in the house. It was noised about that Jesus was in the house. And at every gathering together of believers, what we want to know, what we want to see, what we want to be aware, cognizant of, is that you are in the house, Father. Uh, it is not about us. It is not about us, you know, um, you know, thinking, uh, you know, we're so awesome, we're so good. It's not about the songs. It's not about, we gather together under the banner of your name to know you. And Father, tonight we pray that you would be in the house, that as we read scripture, as we talk, that my words would be filled with the fullness of your presence and your purpose to draw us after life in you and help me to only say as much as I'm able what comes from your heart, what you want me to say tonight. So be here, anoint me to speak, anoint hearts and ears to hear and speak. Lead us into your presence, we pray tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. I worked at a camp called Canicut Camp in Missouri. 
And I had a cabin, me and my co-counselor Steve had a cabin of 12 kids, 11 to 12 years old. And um, we would do devotionals with them. It was a Christian athletic camp. We'd do devotionals with our kids every night. There's about four or 500 kids in this camp. It's a big place. And we do devotionals with them every night. We didn't necessarily know uh, all the kids that were coming to this camp were Christian, uh, but we certainly wanted to have an impact on them. So here we were doing devotionals these nights, and one of the guys that had, a, I think, a Catholic background had a pretty dramatic experience, encounter with God, bowed his head, began to cry, and gave his life to Christ in our cabin. And he was there for two weeks, and at the end of the two weeks, he came up to me, and he said, hey, Josh, you know, and, and we noticed, my co-counselor and I, we noticed a change in his attitude just even the next day. It was crazy. 12-year-old kid, he came up to me and he said, hey, I've been thinking about going home, and I want to know what should I do when I go home? What, what, you know, should I, what should I do with my music? And I thought, huh, that's an interesting question. I said, well, what kind of music do you listen to? And he starts listing these rap, urban, hip-hop, metal, and they're not just categories. I'm talking the nastiest of the nastiest stuff. And I said, I said, buddy, that depends a good deal on what do you want to have happen when you leave here? You've opened the door to a new life in Christ, and you could go back home and kind of re-enter the life you had before, and Christ will still be part of your life, but, it, you know, it, it'll be a lot the same. You might get frustrated. The long road of that could be very bad. On the other hand, I mean, I was honest with him. On the other hand, if you want to continue in the life you found while you're here at camp in this atmosphere, is that what you want? What do you want? He looked at me and just answered right away. He goes, I want to live and serve for Christ with all my heart. I said, then take those tapes and CDs and whatever they are, and crush them and burn them and throw them out. Get rid of them. Change your life, buddy. Change your life. Live the way you've seen us live here. Stop with all the other. A month later, I got a package in the mail. We'd write our campers letters. I was back in college. This was in my college years. Uh, I got a letter in the mail. I opened it up. I've got this letter from the same kid saying, thank you so much for the time that you and Steve invested in me I went home and did everything you said, and my life is totally different than it's ever been before. And my parents are telling me they don't know what happened to me. They're happy about it. I opened this little box, and in that box was a silver ring that this little guy had bought with money I'm sure he didn't have that I've worn to this day. And it's a reminder for me what will happen, what can happen, if I'll put my all, lay my all on the field in the service of Christ, and get out of the way and say, Lord Jesus, you do your thing. Help me to be part of that. I want to live that life. Colossians chapter 2 starts with this idea of surrendering everything for the cause of Christ. A life change. Let me ask you the same question I asked my 12-year-old little guy, Rob, that night. What do you want? What do you want when you walk out of this place tonight, this gathering, what do you want tomorrow and next month and next year to feel like? Do you believe with your heart of hearts that Christ has a calling, another life waiting for you? Do you believe there's more, so much more? Do you really believe to the point that it moves you to new depths and new heights of surrender that you'll lay aside everything else to pursue it like my little guy did there at camp? C.S. Lewis said, if we find in ourselves a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, 
the most probable explanation is we were made for another world. That is the Christian answer to life. That we leave aside the dust and garbage of this life and go after him. Today, do you, Christian friend, person, here we are gathered together. We've made some good, Joni and I have made some awesome relationships here. But I don't know everybody, where everybody's coming from. Do you, today, still desire his fullness in your life like you did at the start? Badly enough to surrender all of your sins, selfishness, and even the weights and outside priorities that keep you entangled in things that have nothing to do with his purpose. That have nothing to do with his purpose. My earnest prayer and hope for all of us tonight is that we would wake up, stop playing games with God, tear away the dragon skin of sin that keeps us slumbering, distracted, disenchanted, and unengaged. The title of the sermon is The Dragon Skin Principle. It's what I want to talk to you about tonight. You'll hear what that name means at the end. Colossians talks about a two-step process. First, we are buried with Christ in death. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> no, actually, that one's right, Jeff. Yeah, but we can flip over. First, we are... Let's go. Yeah, we can go past that one. Thank you. The two-step process. First, we are buried with Christ in death. Through, and then second, through active trust and faith in Him, we are raised to new life. These are the two inseparable halves of the spiritual revolution known as the Christian life. It's nothing short of a revolution, but there's two halves to it. The first half is that I come, I experience salvation, I come to the cross, my life begins to be changed. And the second half is that I go on to be transformed, radically changed from who I was. It starts at the moment at the cross, but it continues well past that. And if tonight you are feeling weighed down, disturbed, agitated, frustrated, generally unsatisfied with your walk with Christ, this truth is for you. You understand what I'm saying? This is it. This is the door. Christ said, I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the door. Nobody else. Nothing else. What are you hanging on to that isn't Him? Right? Whatever it is, it will only weigh you down and hinder you in your pursuit of life and in your pursuit of Him. And with um, these two halves of the revolution, both salvation and sanctification, without, without both, the whole thing breaks down. It is essential that we all, by coming to Christ and continuing with Him, deal with the complacent sin and insidious darkness that hides away in the cobwebs in the back corners of our lives. Christ is a bright and shining and intense light that wants to bring us fully out into this thing. Buried then raised, dead then awakened to life. Before I go to that one, I'm going to go back. (laughs) Oh, I messed it up, Jeff. There we go. So, and I I will tell you, the second half struggle is real. It happens on a small battlefield. It happens on the big battlefield. For me, the second half struggle, for all of us, this is real. But for me, for my part... I will be honest with you, for my part, on the small everydayness of life, I do struggle battle with pride, specifically the pride of being right or justified and knowing it. It's one thing to be right, it's another thing to know it. So with me, the way, what, the way my mind works, sometimes I'll be right in a situation and I'll know I'm right, and that's the problem. 
Just being honest. I would say that I fight against the tough and fibrous self-will like anybody else does. It lays crouched in my soul, ready to devour the vitality and joyfulness in my spiritual life in a moment. And that's true for all of us. A few years back, I had a friendship with another Christian guy, a Christian leader. We were partnering together in ministry, and things were going fast, fantastic and going great. And just, I don't know, just the way the Lord put this relationship together, I thought so much is going to come out of this. And it did bear fruit. He and I would get together on a weekly basis, plan, prepare, do things, all ministry-related, but also developing a real friendship out of it. He asked me to get involved. I said yes. I committed. But at some point, maybe six, seven months in, the tone started to change, and I felt the tone started to change, and I had no idea what it was. And so over coffee, over our coffee, house, uh, coffee shop meeting that week, I said, hey, man, you know, is something wrong? Is anything bothering you? We keep a pretty open dialogue. Is there something? Because I don't feel like your mood has changed in general, but I do feel like it's changed towards me. So if I've done something wrong, I really want to know. No, no, no. It's okay. Everything's fine, you know. I mean, the next month goes by. I ask him again because it's there and it's still gotten worse and I can feel it. And now my wife's sensing it. What's going on, you know, with so-and-so? And I, I don't know, about three or four times over the next six, seven weeks, I ask him, what's going on? Nothing, 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 everything's fine. Until, <laughs> as these things go, until one day, he sits down with me, and he says, for the last six months, for the last six months, I've been writing and journaling about you in my journal And so I should have just stole that. Thank you. Okay, so, so and, and now, and what, what made it worse was that at the point that he's telling me he wants to break up this ministry stuff we're doing together in this partnership. So he's waited until it's reached critical mass, and he said, I don't want to do this with you anymore. I never had the chance to answer any of his objections. He never told me what they were. I've been journaling for the last six months. Let me tell you, let me just be painfully honest. I was furious. I was furious. And in the moment, he knew it. I mean, I didn't say much, but my face said everything. I was furious. I never had the opportunity to respond to his objections despite my repeated efforts of knowing something was wrong, of bringing it up to him, and now the whole thing was going to be thrown away and enraged me. I'll be honest. Now, I withheld myself from exploding at him. I was tempted to literally... Uh, you know, nuclear bomb our whole relationship and just like, that's it, I'm done with you. You know, that's what I wanted to do in my flesh. But I held back, I showed restraint, and he and I are still friends to this day. But that doesn't matter, see, because this isn't something that just happens externally. This is something that happens internally. I knew that I was enraged and furious. My wife knew. And so I had to deal with that self-will inside of me. Regardless of if I attacked him or did what I wanted to do, it was alive and going inside of me. So I had to go to the foot of the cross. I had to find quiet time in prayer. And I had to lay that before Christ. I had to say, me being right in this situation is not as important as me letting it go, as me taking it on the chin, as me being quiet about it and surrendering it to you. Then as now, if I wanted to live in Christ's rule in my life, to command my heart, my soul, my life, that old fleshly-minded, selfishly inclined man in me has to go. My old man, who I was apart from Christ, has to crawl up on the cross and die. I have to put him there. 
Christ has to do his transforming and freeing work in me. I'll never get there on my own. And that's just on the smaller part of the picture. That's just an everydayness. Yeah, that was a you know, year, maybe year and a half experience, but that's the smaller part. It's a two-step process. That was definitely part of the second step. I've got two points tonight. Because we're talking about staying in the fight with Christ. We're talking about continuing to pursue Christ. The two-step process to be buried with Christ and then, to, and then to come in and be sanctified and not give up no matter what I experience, no matter what I go through, no matter what happens, I have to keep my soul honest, pure, and clean as much as I'm able at the foot of the cross. And so there's two points tonight that I want to talk to you about. Number one, to pursue Christ in this way and to live this life, this will cut deeper than you think. This will cut deeper than you think, than any of us thinks. That old, grimy, dingy, darkened self in you that is bent on sin, willfully rebellious and determined to get his or her own way has to die or it will eventually destroy you. Is that clear? Do we all understand that the cross doesn't just mean his death, it means my death so I can have his life? Not just at one point. I tell you, with the two-step process, I do feel like it tends to be a little more popular the first part. I came, I experienced the freedom, I came to the cross, my life has changed, awesome, great, great, great. Now I'm just going to kind of sail off into the sunset, the end of the movie, you know? The guy on the horse and the, woo, you know, happily ever after. But if you've lived past a week as a Christian, you know, and that's not the whole story. That you have to actively be part of cutting away that deadly thing in you that is your carnal self that will rise up and vie against Christ and push you off course and shipwreck you. Right? So to really live this way, this will cut deeper than you think. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. I'm just going to read from my notes this time. Acts chapter 2, verse 37 and 39. Through 39, I want to prove to you and show you from Scripture, don't take my word for it, I want to show you from Scripture that I'm not just making this up. That's very important. Chris does that. Don't let any preacher teacher ever just tell you something and then not back it up with the word, right? I'm not just making this up. So this is what Scripture is putting out before us. Acts chapter 2. Verse 37, 38, and 39 says this. Now when they, people at Pentecost, on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, when they heard this, it says, this what? Peter preaching the gospel. They were cut to the heart. And they said to him and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? My little guy at Canicut Camp. What should I do? Brothers, what shall we do? It says they were cut to the heart. Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promises to you, to your children, to those who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. The promise and the fullness of the Holy Spirit fills in when I, a lot of times, empty out. I'm not saying that we have to be perfect, sanctified. Like Chris said, you come to baptism no matter where you're coming from. But there comes a moment when you have to come face to face with that cross and say, I'm willing for it to go, Father God, Holy Spirit, so you can come in. And you hear what got said right there. What shall we do? Repent. Repentance is the key to the kingdom, literally. Repentance is the key to the kingdom, literally. The truth cuts deep. It always will. It has to. The first message of John the Baptist and Jesus was what? Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. Chapter 4, verse 17. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. It goes on and on. It was what? 
Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Why should you repent and change your life? Because God is near and he wants you and he wants all of you and he can make you into something you can't make yourself into. Repent and turn towards him. (laughs) The gospel truth is razor sharp and ready to bring clarity where there's confusion and freedom where there is failure. You hear me? Right? Clarity where there's confusion, freedom where there is failure. But you have to place yourself under the knife of soul surrender. He's the good physician who's able to cure the sick, mend the broken, and cut out the cancer of sin that's eating you alive. Listen, in this hour, I'm going to say it, Chris knows I'm going to say it. In this hour of pervasive permissiveness. Do you hear me? In this hour that we live in of pervasive permissiveness. Everything's okay except everything's not okay. Because there are things that will kill you. There are things that will destroy you. The word says about sin, about the enemy, its desire is to devour you. Its desire is for you to eat you up. In this hour of pervasive permissiveness, it's okay, this is okay, that's okay, everybody's got their rights, except look at the the crucified Christ who says, come to the cross. It's not about you, it's about my life in you, and you've got to die for that to happen. This is the Christian life. In this hour of pervasive permissiveness, have we forgotten that sin is a cold stone criminal that will steal, kill, and destroy our lives? While he waits, while Christ waits and works to restore us, give us abundant life and overflowing life, and heal our self-inflicted woundedness. His answer is the only antidote to our sin problem. Do you know this? The only way to be unburdened, unbroken, and live an unfettered life, repentance, obedience, and rest from self are the essential pathway to freedom. Let me say it another way. Matthew chapter 16, verse 25, you don't have to turn there, I'll quote it to you, says, whoever desires to lose his life for my sake, Jesus talking in the Gospels, will find it. If you want the reference, it's Matthew 16, 25. He says, whoever desires to lose his life, whoever will lose his life for my sake in the gospel will find it. Let me say it this way. The measure by which you give your life away is the measure by which you will find it. The measure by which you actively give your life away in his kingdom for his purposes is the measure in which he will give it back to you and you will find it. I hope that's clear. (laughs) Point number two. Before I say point number two, I'll say that one more way. This will cut deeper than you think. The grace and mercy of God are unspeakably amazing and overwhelming, but you need to know that they have a purpose. That is, to kill off, to put to death our old self. This truth will cut deeper than you think. Number two, he's not like other gods. In the opening, and you can turn if you want, First Chronicles chapter 28, or flip there, we'll read it in a second. In the opening scene of Matrix, Matrix the movie, I love the movie, my wife doesn't, she gives me a hard time. In the opening scene, you have Trinity walking Morpheus into this room to meet, I'm sorry, walking Neo into this room to meet Morpheus. You don't need to know how these people are if you don't know, it's nerdy. But just know that this guy's walking into this room and Trinity's standing there and she says to him, it's a really cool scene, she says to him, 
Let me give you a piece of advice as you're walking in to see this person for the first time. Be honest. He knows more than you can possibly imagine. She says to him, be honest. He knows more than you can possibly imagine. In 1 Chronicles, King David gives his son, 1 Chronicles, King David, the king of Israelite, is handing over the reins to his son Solomon, gives his son Solomon a similar set of instructions. Look at chapter 28, 1 Chronicles 28, 9 through 10. He says, Solomon, my son, learn to know the God of your ancestors intimately, worship and serve him with your whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord sees every heart and knows every plan and thought. What's he saying? He knows more than you could possibly imagine. You can't fool him. But it's okay. You don't want to fool him, but you just need to know. Don't try. Don't try. It won't work out. For the Lord sees every heart and knows every plan and thought. If you seek him, says David to his son, you will find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you. So take this seriously. The Lord has chosen you to build a temple as his sanctuary. Be strong and do it. I love that. Be strong and do it. But he's not like other gods. He's saying to his son, he's not like other gods. He sees and knows you. You can't hide from him. Don't try to hide from him. Serve him with an open and honest heart. Give everything you have to him like I did, David is saying. It's worth it. It's infinitely worth it. I'm trying to impart to you, my son, what I've lived. Have we forgotten the nature of the God we're dealing with? Let me ask you. Have we? Have you? Have I? Have we? Forgotten the nature of the God we're dealing with. He knows more than we could possibly imagine. To live for Him, we have to enter fully unreservedly into the radiance and intensity and piercing light of His presence. We have to let it expose our hearts, wash us clean, and lift us into new life. His sovereignty is a game-changing reality because He's the only one that sees the answer and will guide us through it. He's not going to be like the mean boss that hides away the information. You know what I mean? Oh, I know that, but I'm not going to tell you because I'm the boss, you know? This is not God, the Father. His sovereignty sees all, yet takes what he knows and acts on our behalf, and he wants us right here in his entourage with him. His sovereignty is the only, his sovereignty means he sees it all, and he's the only one that sees the way through it. We have to remember and understand clearly that he's not like other gods. He's not like other gods. So number one, the truth will cut deeper than you think. And two, don't try to play games. He's not like other gods. But it's worth it to lay it all on the line. So this is it. We've arrived at the center point of this idea of the dragon skin principle that I want to set before you. The key question uh, to bring this out is what are you hiding away? Is there anything? What are you harboring from him? Do you understand that it's only killing you to keep it. Do you understand that it's only killing you to keep it? Do you understand? Look, I'm not talking about what I see. I'm not talking about what Dave sees, Miguel sees. I mean, I'm a social guy. I like to hang out. But I'm not talking about what another person can see. I mean, sure, you could... We were honest with another. We can have accountability. But I'm talking about in the depth of your heart and the place that God sees, are you hanging on to it? Are you letting it go? 
Sin will always take you farther than you wanted to go, make you pay longer than you, make you stay longer than you wanted to stay, make you pay more than you wanted to pay. Always, without exception. Without exception, sin will take you farther than you wanted to go. I was going to stop here, but here I am way past. Have you ever had a moment like that in life? I never thought I would wind up here. It'll make you stay longer than you ever wanted to stay, and it will make you pay more than you ever wanted to pay. What is the rescue of the cross? You don't have to live that. You don't have to live that. It will rob you of your very life, your joy, your peace, your hope, anything good if you don't lay it on the cross, let, set aside that sin, has the potential to drain out of the hole in the bottom of the boat that sin creates. In time, sink you. Don't let this happen to you. Let's go back to our passage for a minute. Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to read again. Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, 12, and 13. I'm going to read the center section of this. Christ performed a, a spiritual circumcision. It says the cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted in the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. With me? That means there's a process, an after-the-cross process where you keep going. And then this amazing, I love the next part. Let's stop at the next part. It says, because your sinful nature was not yet cut away, then God made you alive with Christ. Then God. Some of the most awesome, powerful words in Scripture are when it says, this and this happened, but God. Or this and this and this happened. Then God stepped in and the whole situation changes. Right? Then God made you alive with Christ. That old leathery skin of pride, selfishness, and inward depravity must be stripped away or we will never be free. Cut away. Eustace was an important, self-centered, conniving, and scowly type of little boy. In the book five of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, anybody read Chronicles of Narnia when you were a kid? Yeah. Uh, author C.S. Lewis tells how Eustace discovers a cave full of hidden treasure on a remote island, put a gold bracelet that he found on his arm, and then he falls asleep in a pile of pirate loot. That's what he thinks it is. And he turns into a dragon. Yes, it's fictional. Not, you know, Hollywood based on a true story. What part of that? Not sure. <laughs> turns into a dragon. After realizing his situation, he desperately wants to change back, but is unable, unable, incapable. Ever been there? Desperately wants to change back, but he's unable. He's incapable of doing so. So Eustace the dragon doesn't know what to do, and then one night Aslan, massive, huge lion who represents in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia the savior character, Aslan the lion meets him at night, Eustace the dragon, <laughs> literal dragon in this situation. And he comes to Eustace and he guides him into a large well that Lewis writes is like a very big round bath with marble steps going down into it. And Eustace wants to get into the well, but Aslan tells him that he has to remove his dragon skin before entering the water. So Eustace begins to peel off the dragon skin. He's like, all right, I want in that water. I'm going to get this stuff off. I've wanted it off anyways. And this, you know... 
guys, lion, whatever you are, is telling me I can do it, so I'm going to rip this skin off. And he starts to peel it off, but after he you know, scales, strips off layers and layers of it, it's no use. He's still a dragon. He's just gotten some layers ripped off, and he's still a dragon. So then Aslan the lion walks up to him and says, you're going to have to let me do it. If you've never read this, you're going to go on to read it now. The fictional child's book that's very adult lesson. And Eustace, in Lewis's words, Eustace writes, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. <laughs> I mean, just think about this in your relationship with Christ, will you? You ever been in a place where you said, I'm more afraid of staying like I am than I am of changing? I'm afraid of what you'll do, but it's time. It's time to lay it on the line. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. Acts chapter 2, they were cut to the heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Did somebody tell you that this Christian life was going to be easy? Don't believe it. Don't believe it. But it's worth it. 1,000 times over, it's worth it. It's more it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt, says Eustace the dragon. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Again, think of your Christian life. The only thing that made me able to bear it was I didn't want to be what I was yesterday. Then he caught hold of me, threw me into the water. He says, and that hurt because I didn't have dragon skin on anymore. Whew, that smarted, you know? It smarted like anything, but only for a moment, and after that it became perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm, and then I saw why I'd turned into a boy again. As in the lion says to him, you're going to have to let me do it. Christian, do you hear the voice of the Lord saying to you, have you fought against, have you pushed against this thing, have you failed? You're going to have to let me do it. You're going to have to let me in there. You're going to have... Now, I'm not promising you it's not going to hurt, and I'm not promising you that it's just going to be this easy, woo, you know, cloud nine experience, but you will not regret it, and you will thank me, and you'll be free. What does this look like? Okay? I want to tell you this story to close, and then kind of talk to you about responding to this and what it might look like for you. What does it look like? That old dead carnal stuff, the flesh of the old life of slavery, darkness, selfishness, despair has to come off. It will come off, but only with Christ's help and only if we let him do it. This is the dragon skin principle. I'm going to say it to you one more time. The old dead carnal stuff, the flesh of the old life of slavery, darkness, selfishness, and despair will come off, but only with Christ's help and only if we let him do it. My freshman year of college, this is my example. I told you the small story. I want to tell you the big one, okay? Freshman year of college, I had really given my life to Christ my senior year. That's when I had, my whole life had changed. My freshman year of college, I was saying, I'm not sure what this looks like, but I want to live for you. I really do. And there was a group of us that first year that randomly gathered together. We started having some prayer times, and those prayer times turns into late night spiritual discussions 
that turned into regular prayer meetings and weekly Bible studies. And within the first semester of my time there on campus, about 6,000 students, what was happening in our little group of people became kind of a phenomenon. I heard different people from different organizations saying, what's happening with, I'm hearing about this everywhere, which was really cool because it was nothing that we had done, but there was some influence coming out of prayer. And during that year, God had been growing me with or without my knowledge, with or without my consent, dealing with deeper issues of pride as I was growing in Him, immaturity, attitude, complacency, and sin that had to be worked out inside of me before I was ready to face life or, most importantly, ready to face God's plan for me. Second semester, it all came down to a night, April 7th. It's about a month away that our freshman year was going to be done. We had a tight-knit group of people that had really gotten to know one another, and my buddy Derek had kind of, there was three of us that took turns teaching, you know, that had come from Christian backgrounds in this little group. And he said, I'm going to not teach for a while. And he went and disappeared and he spent all these extended prayer times. And I'll tell you, in our group, there was a change in his attitude and his countenance that was like, uh, I don't know, it was like more illuminated. Something's going on with Derek. And he said, I'm not going to share until I share. So that night, April 7th, he led the, led the, led the message. And he stood up there after, we, after worship uh, wound down, and he began to speak. He began to share his heart, what God had been laying on his heart this last year, and it really began to soak into my soul. As we listened to him, about 25, 30 of us in that college classroom, I will tell you from my perspective that soon into the talk, he wasn't talking anymore. He was really preaching, because what he was saying had such force behind it. He went on about the need in us as Christians for humility, prayer, turning from sin, coming to God on simple terms. I remember him referring to a little child and saying, if we don't come to Christ as a little child, we'll never, you know, we have to be more trusting, more open. If we don't do this, then we're leaving off some aspect of the life he wants us to live. He was saying that perhaps we're not being as open to God as we need to. How could we as Christians, said Derek, Dare to sit and blame God for so many of our problems, distresses, pains, troubles in our life when we were not willing to stop and allow Him to help. What were we afraid of? And how was God ever going to show His massive love for us and all humanity if we would never give Him the chance? If we just refused to come to the light? Derek wasn't mad. Not at all. He was just being painfully honest about what God had doing, been doing in his own life, his own soul, and was sharing that. And I could see it in his eyes. He and I were really good friends. We've been friends in high school as well. At one point towards the end of the talk, he drew a line on the ground. He said, draw a line in the sand. And he said, if you're ready to make a change, if you're ready to walk over this line and give Christ your everything, absolutely, all in all, I challenge you to surrender. I challenge you to do it. And it got a hold of me, I'll tell you. I was sitting there taking notes. I put down my pen. In fact, what Derek's message was is he said, uh, God has done mighty things through time. He talked about God's mighty revivals and the things God had done through Wesley and Finney and so many times down through history to radically change culture and the world. And he said, for us to be part of this, we have to lay it down and give him everything. We have a choice, a huge one. And I remember at some point I put down the pen, I quit paying attention, and God was just dealing with my heart. I'm not much of a crier, if any of those who know me. But as I put my head down, I put my pen down, I leaned my head down, 
And I began to kind of cry and weep because I could feel the hardness, the leatheriness, the, the, the resistance that was in my own heart. As much as I thought that I was His, as much as I thought that I had given my life to Him, the Holy Spirit was going to begin to expose, right? This immaturity, this pride, this place that I was saying, you know, no God, no, no. And the Holy Spirit's coming close. And I put my head down. And I began to cry. And as he said, do you want to come up here? I remember not even noticing what was going on in the room. And I crawled up. I walked up to the front, put my head down, and probably for 45 minutes just began to sob as I laid my heart out before the Lord. And I felt this massive wall that I didn't know was there just being destroyed like a wrecking ball coming down on the inside of me. 45 minutes later, Derek had stopped directing traffic, and nobody in that room had said anything. There were people at the altar, people quiet, nobody had left. I walked out of that room, all of us walked out of that room, quiet, silent, somber. It was a life-changing encounter. And that was the night the Lord said to me, now I'm calling you into the ministry, to which I responded, yeah, like I've got a choice now. <laughs> I said, how could I do anything else? This is it. This is the freedom. How could I ever be excited about, thrilled about anything else? But that was the moment for me that when I think of Lewis's story, certainly there's smaller level stories like what I just shared with you that happened to me a couple years ago, and these things happen all the time. But that for me was the moment that I never went back from, that I can look and I can say, I was never the same after that moment. And everybody around me knew it. My parents are right here. You can ask them. <laughs> I mean, that year, I had already had my life transformed. I had come to Christ, but at the end of my freshman year of college, I was a different person. I'll give you, uh, let, me, let me ask Mandy and the team to come back up because I'm drawing this to a close. But I'll tell you, Derek and I, we came back one year later and there was a girl he was dating and there was close friends of ours that literally said to us, you guys have changed so much. We don't feel like we know you that much anymore. Like, it was a good change. But whereas we were kind of taking little mini steps of growing that year of experiencing life in the Holy Spirit and pursuing Him, we grew by leaps and bounds. And I'm telling you that it's an open door for all of us to say, if I am ready to jettison, to get rid of. So let me ask you this question as the band starts to play. And what I want to do here tonight is just give an opportunity, however long that might be, during worship to come and respond, because I would say it this way, what do you think, let me ask you, what do you think is the number one temptations that most Christians face? What do you think it is? Is it self-interest? Is it greed? Is it ambition, pride, deceitfulness, disobedience, stubborn resistance to God? Something darker? All the above. That's a good answer, Frank. But I'll tell you, I, I baited you. You know I was baiting you, right? I'll tell you, it's none of the above. Because you know what it really is? You know what it really is, if we're being perfectly honest? It's that secretly, silently, in a place that only you and God see, you just give up. That you throw in the towel inwardly and keep going through the motions outwardly. That is the number one temptation that most Christians face. That's it. You can put a, a smile on it. You can act however you want. But is it motions or is it reality? To silently, in a place that only you and God see, that you give up 
Remember the two-step process? We're buried with Christ and raised to new life. First, we're buried. Second, we're raised. Are you running from that second step? Have you ceased thriving and growing in Him? Are you running from the second step? Being cleansed, clean, washed, sanctified by enjoying, knowing, and relentlessly pursuing Him as that old, scaly, and hardened dragon skin, right? That only He can remove. That's what I want to ask you. It's time, isn't it? Time to let Him step in and cut it away. Time to step into the well of healing water. Hosea chapter 14, verse 2 says this. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to Him, take away all my iniquity and receive us graciously so that we may offer you the sacrifice of praise. See, God doesn't want token praise. He wants praise out of limitless inward freedom. So let me just ask you to close your eyes for a minute as we go into some worship. And I want to pray in a minute. And I would say that this time is yours. I would say that it's pretty cool if we want to make this place an altar. I don't know what God might be doing. If you're somebody that's here that's never come to Christ, then come up here. Grab one of us and pray with us. But if you're here and you do know Christ, but as I'm reading these scriptures to you tonight and talking candidly with you about this, you're saying, yeah, there's a place in my heart where I'm having to start to ask myself, what will I give up to live my life for Christ? What will I give up to lay this down? Will you ask yourself, is it time to turn a corner? Is it time to not keep this pet sin, to keep this pet thing, to hold on to this that is blocking you from running after Him? Let me pray for you, and then I would challenge you to turn and, and bow down in your seat to do business with God right there where you are, or to come down front and pray up here. Make this place an altar. Let me pray for you. Father God, we have to not live in inward defeat and outward painting on a face and pretending like it's not what it is. You want to restore us from the inside out. So, Father God, if there's anybody here tonight, Christian or non, that's saying, it's time for me to come to the cross. It's time for me to come and lay it all down and surrender it all and leave it all in the dirt to put all of it aside and give you everything. Father, I pray that if there's anybody tonight here that you would move their heart to do business with you whether that's down front here, whether it's in their seat, whatever that might be, as we go into worship, and can, you know, go into worship tonight and go into your presence, that you would call people into yourself and that people, that we would respond to let you do it. To say like Eustace did, I was pretty near at the end of myself. I was pretty, I had enough, I couldn't do it. And I needed to let him. Jesus, do this, we ask you. We pray tonight in your name.
Amen.